right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 32. Um, we're going to change it up a little bit on this episode. I have with me uh, this time around James Alfred, some of you may remember, and again, Jason Lindgren. Uh, James put together a kind of list uh, covering many of the big news and propaganda events of 2016. Um, anyhow, the strange thing that I saw on Turner Classic Movies recently, um, I don't watch much TV, but I keep an eye on the listings and I record certain things to do research, but I saw that uh, Turner Classic Movies was going to run a show about World War II called To Tell the Truth, A Strategy of Truth, The Role of Film as Propaganda, and so it piqued my interest, and of course Alec Baldwin was there to intro it in. I recorded three things, that that one I just mentioned, but there were two others that I recorded. Oh, there was a live combat reel that I've watched where, for the life of me, there's no real combat in it. I kid you not. But anyhow, there's a Hollywood director that is very famous called John Ford, known for many Westerns, called maybe the best director of his age, these types of things. This man from Hollywood was put in charge of the Navy's film unit under the umbrella of the OSS and asked to make a movie on Pearl Harbor called December 7th, which I have yet to see. I did record it. And um, another one called The Battle of Midway. I urge people to go look at these. The, 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 the Battle of Midway film was made in 1942. When I watched this, my jaw kind of hit the floor. While I'm suspicious of all history, uh, this whole To Tell the Truth series that they're doing, from what I can tell, is basically showing you what film around war is. It's propaganda, nothing more. In this giant battle of Midway, which was a big turning point for the Pacific theater of war, um, John Ford was asked to go out and shoot combat. They even make the point of saying at one point shrapnel hits the camera, knocking the film off the reel, and he kept it in the movie. Well, I watched the whole thing, and I'm here to tell you, at no time was any combat filmed in that movie. It is the most trite piece of propaganda I have ever witnessed. At certain points, they show things on fire, or a small explosion, or these anti-aircraft flat guns shooting into the air, and this grandmotherly voice comes on and states this really happened i mean propaganda beyond belief at one point they're supposedly on a ship shooting down enemy planes which are nowhere to be seen and you they do a camera pan across these officers and other people they're all smiling and laughing in the middle of a supposed pitch battle um it's ludicrous and it tells you what has gone on in the covering of our history and what it means to have Hollywood so closely tied to our military and other, you know, major events in history. And I would also point out, you know, 9-11 has been referred to as the new or the next Pearl Harbor or whatever. Knowing what we do about 9-11, what does that automatically tell you about Pearl Harbor? And I will be scrutinizing that piece of film, but I expect to find the very same thing. You're looking at propaganda. Not only, I mean, even having done the Tavistock work and knowing uh, what the social engineering tools are and what's being done, um, at certain points they would have a grandmotherly voice come in and say, isn't that Johnny from our neighborhood? And then supposedly after the battle they go search and rescue and they pull a guy out of the water that's been there uh, seven days, no food or water, and they're showing him. It looks like 
you know, he looks like he just rolled out of bed, not floating in the ocean for seven days. And they get all the way up to, I think, 13 or 14 days where they're rescuing a guy. And they say, no food or water. He's been floating in the ocean for 14 days. And here's his first cigarette, you know. Oh, joy be. And then the grandmotherly voice comes on and says, oh, get him to the clean hospital where the gentle hands of the nurse can apply the medicine he deserves. And I mean, it is the rankest piece of propaganda I have ever seen in my life. And these were the newsreels that the world was shown around the Battle of Midway, which I am calling a fraud. And I expect to find the very same thing when I look at Pearl Harbor. And it's not easy to say these things because so many people come and say, well, I had relatives that were in World War II. Well, so do I. Um, You know, I had a close member of the family who claims he watched the flag go up on Mount Suribachi. And being a Marine, I know the whole history of Mount Suribachi. It's like the most iconic Marine Corps photograph ever taken. Um, It's crazy to think about what's going on. But I urge people... Sorry, my my recorder shut off. But anyhow, uh, look at the movie by John Ford, The Battle of Midway, 1942, for the OSS. Look at December 7th, which is about Pearl Harbor. And if you can, look up the TCM running of To Tell the Truth, A Strategy of Truth, with the description, The Role of Film as Propaganda. Uh, very, very telling. Anyhow, let's jump into episode uh, 32 with James and Jason. It's a good episode. Second part runs on Crow Triple Seven Radio for members. It is more than an hour and a half, I think, the second part. There it is, man. Let's jump in. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This will be episode 32, and today I have James Alfred and Jason Lindgren. Uh, we decided to switch it up uh, in talking with James and Jason, particularly James. Uh, we had decided that it would be kind of cool to do a year-end wrap-up and kind of cover just so much of the nonsense and propaganda that has gone in in the year of 2016. Um, we may switch it, but for the most part, I think we're going to have James drive through uh, actually a pretty sizable list he's put together here. It would not surprise me to see the second hour going well over an hour, but we'll have to see uh, when we get there. Anyhow, welcome, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. And great to be back as always and speak to you both fine gentlemen. All right, cool. We're going to have to, the way we're recording, we'll have to time our responses to each other. I don't know what's going to happen if we crash. <laughs> um, so we'll get into the hang of it, you know, who 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 answers first so we don't jack the recording. Um, sure. Because we're using cheap tools. Well, Jason's probably not, but I am. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyhow, so, you know, uh, Jason or uh, James kicked out an outline for the year-end review. Um, for those of you who remember, I have done shows with James. As a matter of fact, I did a reverse interview with him. I don't remember what episode it was, but it's back in the podcast archive. Um, he started really becoming a researcher in his own right to refresh memories uh, as the lunar wave was kind of hot on everybody's mind and the Hattie Bob research uh, that I was at one point involved in. And James has become quite a researcher in his own right, recognizing the nonsense and encoding that goes into so much of what we're surrounded with. But having said that, I'll just kick it over to you, James. Uh, grab the wheel, drive it on down the road. Yeah, that sounds good. Again, thanks uh, for having me. Jason, long time, no speak. So good to finally be a guy on the airwaves with you. Yes. Um, to begin it, Jason actually had some pretty good points. Maybe before we get going on some of this stuff that happened in the year 2016, uh, the first question, um, 
for Crow. Has anyone filmed the lunar wave in 2016? And when are you aware of anything new in respect to the, uh, the lunar wave? Yeah, and you know what? I was going to write these things down. There's been actually a number of captures. I mean, we had CD earlier. It wasn't clear whether that was um, truly a lunar wave. I don't think it ever got really vetted. Um, and I did notice some differences in the capture, but there have been others. I would estimate that I have seen... Jeez, I don't even know. I'm, I'm going to throw out a number here, and then someone's going to call me on it who's been paying better attention than I have. Um, we have, I don't know, maybe five or six captures that are out there uh, in, in one way, shape. And actually, someone sent me footage about a week ago. Uh, for the most part, what I've tried to do is step back and let the lunar wave become organic. But to simply answer the question, yes, we've had a number of possible captures, although I'm not sure if anyone is truly vetting them at this point. Well, I think the fair thing to do with the Lunar Wave Crow is um, it's cool that people send it to you and you take a look at it and kind of comment, but as long as no one's trying to hold your feet to the fire that uh, you're responsible for all of the Lunar Wave footage on planet Earth, you know, it's cool that you at least mention it and say, hey, this this got captured, but go do your own homework on it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, what what you're saying is spot on. And that's a, that's exactly why I stepped back, because it did kind of get to a point uh, where anything that got captured, it would be sent to me like I was some kind of the be all and end all. You know, whatever came out of my mouth was what everyone was going to run with. And that's not cool, man. Um, I, I can offer up my view. But truth is, is, first of all, I wasn't there when it was shot. And that is a big damn deal. Um, secondarily. Uh, people, if this is a real thing, people should experience it over time. Um, if it has, if it matters in this world, then that means that it's got to be more than just me saying, oh yeah, that's a cool lunar wave or it's not or whatever. It's got to be more organic. Anyhow, there it is. Okay. Well, on, on top of that, I guess the next, uh, curious question, have you, or are you aware of anybody else who's captured anything unusual in terms of astronomical captures um are you anything new uh developing anything kind of on the fringe that you're aware of that's happened over the past few months yeah you know i'm always getting sent things um and it you know it's a trying thing to be sent video that you know very little about um most of the things that i see like i was just sent images of a moon with black lines going across it and i've experienced this a number of times um course i tried to vet it by saying are you certain there were no power lines how many degrees off the ground was the moon and finally gave my best guess that in that particular case these three lines may have been chemtrails that were very persistent having said that uh, i have been getting quite a bit over time of still images mostly unfortunately of a double sun the appearance of a double sun i've said for a long time that a critical, critical area of research, which I can't really do right now because of where I'm positioned and the number of trees and the amount of chemtrailing, sunrise and sunset have been being blocked by chemplanes for a long, long time. And I think there's a reason that has to do with our visibility of what may be going on. But I think the most interesting thing that I see ongoing is the idea that there is something to see uh, with regard to the sun. And unfortunately, a lot of it's still images Still images always make it very difficult to vet for sun flare and things like this, or lens flare. But um, I'm sure people will keep on it, and when we start to get better video, maybe we'll learn something. Mm -hmm. One of our mutual friends, uh, Cassidy Kring, I know he's been 
pushing the envelope too. I know he he made a solid investment in upgrading his equipment. So, um, you know, Cassidy, if you're listening, appreciate your work and and your correspondence. Looking forward to uh, you know what you're kind of figuring out as well in terms of the moon and stars and so forth. So. And, and th- th- this is why it, why it matters. Um, the, the people, you know, when I first started shooting the moon uh, and I kind of thought, well, I'll never, you know, I had started shooting because I saw things, triangles transiting the moon. And I thought I'll never shoot anything interesting again. As fate would have it, I shot a lot of interesting things. But over time, there were not that many of us doing it. And the truth is, uh, to catch interesting things, you have to put so much of your life into it. Um, hours and hours all the time. So to have people stepping up with decent equipment, uh, this is a big deal. I guarantee if people have the tools and take the time to look, we're going to find out about things that we had no idea of uh, previous to private people doing this type of thing. And would you say there's a lot of people, um, a lot more people doing this kind of work? Has it been growing? Well, you see, this is yes and a no. There's always been a big amateur astronomy uh, group of people. But I kind of have a dividing line because I, too, was once an amateur astronomer where I saw a Hubble image and I said, wow, thanks, NASA, for all this cool stuff. Um, until I grew up enough to understand, you know, quit accepting all these things and go out and challenge them. So while there have always been the amateur astronomy community, there's been very few people that are willing to stand up and speak um, that are challenging simple things like what's up with the moon, what's up with the sun, what are these crazy black round things we film all the time that are not satellites. Um so, yes, there are more, but not nearly enough. And truth be told, we have no way to know how many people are just out there doing it, but they don't want to really stand up in public and deal with all the nonsense that goes with that. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. And I do think that this whole year, I mean, like you had mentioned, um, the people that you have on this show, I mean, there's definitely an awareness and an inquiry in people's mindset. And as you mentioned, all this video, um, the improvements and so forth, it's going to be exciting to see what happens in 2017. I, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm sure everybody else listening is as well. No doubt. Um, okay, so the um, 2016 recap. So um, like Crow had mentioned, I put a list together ahead of time, um, just basically outlining in chronological order some of the events that I could think of, uh, Jason and Crow. Um, this is in no way, shape, or form an all-encompassed list. There's no way I could capture everything or any news item that hit. But we, um, I basically summarized and put together bullet points regarding some of the events and key pieces of information that filter through throughout the year. So this list includes uh, news items. It includes motion pictures. It includes some music, um, sporting events, uh, so forth, commercials. Uh, we really tried to run the whole gamut here of, in terms of what the media is possibly encoding and, and presenting to the, the wider audience. So uh, 2016, of course, began with David Bowie's Black Star. This one was released on January 8th of 2016. It coincided with David Bowie's 69th birthday. Um, the album featured titles such as Black Star, Tis a Pity She Was a Whore, Lazarus, Dollar Days, and I Can't Give Everything Away. Um, kind of a interesting introduction given what happened over 2016 in terms of this album any uh thoughts on this one you want to jump jason well i can just say that the the imagery i saw in uh i guess it's the the main black star video was just over the top just it was the whole video was just loaded with symbolism all over the place 
you know, it's like, what is David Bowie trying to tell us or what is the industry trying to tell us? Because I know a lot of people are saying maybe Bowie's not actually dead. You know, was this a whole setup? And it's just all of the, the numerics, the way they line up and everything. It seems like that there's a much larger agenda to all of this. Yeah, um, to, to jump in here, um, so many of us were saying that these people are faking their deaths. And then go, here comes David Bowie with Lazarus. Um, everyone's familiar with what Lazarus from the biblical context is about and the video to go with it. Um, Bowie, you know, if you think about people in culture, there are very few people that are going to rise to the amount of time and the amount of culture bro Bowie brought with him. And I would remind everyone that he was nicknamed, and, you know, I looked into this a while back. I'm not sure whether he was given this nickname or whether he gave it to himself on a particular album. He was called the White Duke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For people who follow royalty, um, you will find out that dukes are a big damn deal. A duke is someone who is inside the royal family circle. Uh, as a matter of fact, not too long ago when I did the religion breakdown, you will find out that the only three people who were being told the truth about Masonic encoding was a king, a duke, and a rich dude. Um, so that gives you some context to understand, and words have meaning. So the, the thin white duke, as I believe he was referred to, went out supposedly dying of cancer, yet well enough to say, hey, I'm going to go do all this stage production. Um, it's all a bit nonsensical to me. And the whole idea of Black Star is, of course, echoing other artists that we could see in recent history where there were stars that were white, and everyone's familiar that the star encodes the pentagram. But um, I don't know, James, you, you've been actually going in on the code. Do you have anything to add in terms of uh, you know, what was being encoded here? Uh, I looked really at the title and the the video, the the single, I should say, Black Star. I looked at uh, some of the works of uh, Carl Jung again, uh, kind of digging into some of the books that I've purchased over the last uh, few months and so forth. And surprisingly, Black Star is considered to be Saturn. It's the um, in his works, and Jung is considered by many to be a Gnostic. It's the supreme archon of the child of chaos. Oh, I can't believe it! Another Saturn reference. Exactly, exactly. He's got a really good quote, and I and I wrote this down because I would botch it otherwise, but uh, his quote is that the alchemist naturally attached great significance to Saturn for being the outermost planet, the supreme archon, the demiurge. He was also the negrito, who lies captive in the darkness of matter, the deity, or that part of deity which has been swallowed up in his own creation. He is the dark god who reverts to his original luminous state in the mystery of alchemical transmutation. So, Black Star, in regards to alchemy, is, is I guess, considered to be the, uh, the negrito, the blackening process in an alchemical process. And it's basically looking at a target, it's putrefying it, it's degrading it, and it's, it's what is required prior to the rebirth or renewal from the dark mass. So take that for what it's worth. That was a, kind of an interesting symbolic start to 2016. Well, I think what you just touched on is, is really... The foundational ideas that I think are important to get across. This idea of the 
particularly the first three laws of alchemy, the third being something to the effect, depending where you do your research, that that which is hitting is being at least temporarily revealed. Um, you, you, The black star, the idea of Saturn, even the black hole sun, depending on who you see taking these ideas apart, to me it doesn't really matter. And of course, Luciferianism is all wrapped up in this when you get the, you know, morphing from a black hole back out to, a, you know, a brilliant light. But... Um, what you see here is the idea and alchemy of first what you said, ruining everything, it becomes putrid, and then even in, in World War II, say, where the supposed nuclear bomb, the splitting of the atom, atom, breaking Adam from Eve, these ideas, breaking it apart before it's recombined, I think that was all echoed uh, in Black Star, and I think not only that, Bowie was poking us in the eye, um, because he put Lazarus and we were already all saying um, so many of these death by the numbers from these famous people uh, in my view. And uh, there's a lot of people that may differ with me, but in my view, I have a solid stance that these people are not dying at all and that they're probably living a lot longer than us. But I think the, the whole black hole sun, Saturn, you know, all the stuff you just linked up to include alchemy, alchemy. I think these are really some of the guiding principles from the, the jokers that encode all this nonsense. So there's my take. Yeah, and it was shortly thereafter, I think it was, uh, yes, it was January 10th, 2016, Bowie officially, or in terms of the media, was pronounced dead due to liver cancer. He had died in New York City. Um, and my, if I remember correctly, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, news coverage on that ahead of time. I think he just, I think the official story is, is that he kept it, the news fairly close his family, his close friends, and uh, then passed and, of course, had the big grieving. And, and we'll see Bowie featured um, over and over again as we kind of go through the rest of the year here. It's, a, it's an interesting start to uh, the year 2016. There, there's no doubt. Go, go ahead, Jason. But I just want to say there's no doubt he contributed so much to culture. But um, before you, you add in here, Jason, the idea that someone is dying of liver cancer yet has all this time to, to complete an album and make all these videos. Um, he dies at age 69, which is also the Zodiac sign symbol he died under. All of it is nonsense. But go ahead, Jason. I was just going to add in that it, it really uh, makes me wonder when they say that all these different people with a lot of money are dying of cancer. It's very common knowledge these days to anyone who just does a quick internet search that cannabis oil can cure cancer. Right. And, you know, while it might be a little expensive for any of us, uh, somebody with gazillions of dollars could easily afford the treatment. Now, that's not to say it's it's Phoenix Tears and going to cure every single thing every single time. But I find it very hard to believe that somebody like David Bowie, just as the example, wouldn't immediately upon if he really did get a diagnosis of cancer immediately start looking for something to deal with it and and easily be able to access the the highest quality oil on, on the planet you know and that that's just one aspect the gerson method was proven since at least the 30s to cure almost every kind of cancer there is i will go on the record as saying i do not accept that any any very rich famous person dies of cancer what you're looking at here is social engineering in the form of a spell you see, here's your heroes. He only made it to 69. He's going to die of cancer. You're a human being, too. This is what can happen to you. These are the spells of social engineering being cast out to further the mental necessity required to fuel things like the idea that all of us have to die from cancer when anyone with half a brain can understand that cancer is not only treated with poison by our medical community, um, it's been cured since 
probably longer than I'm even aware of in the 30s, and there's more than one way, but all the cures have to do with plant-based medicines. There it is, man. Um, it's just more spells being cast. And it's an important uh, thing to note that the Rockefeller Institutes that, that were funding all the medical research in the 20s, 30s, 40s, they put a lot of money into figuring out what cancer really is and, and I would suggest how to weaponize it. Well, with the Gerson method, what we see is that a guy named Max Gerson uh, apparently was announcing that he had pretty much cured cancer. Someone did. Uh, one of the people that worked with him poisoned him. His method kept him alive long enough to get all his findings solidly handed off to his daughter, Charlotte Gerson, who lives in San Diego. I've done this method. It is amazing. It is clinically proven to cure most cancers. Within three months of the announcement, back in the day, they outlawed um, and called dangerous treating cancer with plant juices, basically. Um, and she is forced to run her clinic out of Tijuana. And there are many countries around the planet, around the world, I got to lose that word, man, around the world that are now setting up Gerson-type clinics, um, it just goes to show you, whenever you, like if you go to Wikipedia and look up Gerson as an example, I'm sure you could find similar things about the cannabis treatments as Sean, who I've had on this show, has shown that he has personally helped cure people with terrible cancers like breast cancer with cannabis. Um, but if you even go to Wikipedia, look up Gerson, you, you'll see lines like um, this, you know, outsiders attempt at curing cancer can even be dangerous well really what's dangerous about apple juice carrot juice lettuce juice you know it, it's mm -hmm. ridiculous um but anyhow don't get me started <laughs> <laughs> yeah good old big pharma you're Can't not dead you're not dead bowie and we know it damn well and i'll take that bet any day of the week my only thing i'd ask is why let's say he he is alive what was what would be the point of uh, faking all this just to get away from the limelight and live out his true remaining days away from it all well it works on a few levels he's doing the social propaganda that people can die young even in his position of something like cancer um it also uh the best description i ever heard was that fame is given to someone literally given and at some point, they got to give it back. So that's what we're seeing. And you've got to realize when someone gives you an album deal, when someone gives you whatever it is that makes you a superstar, they have given you the royal life. And it's not free, apparently. I would like to throw out to anybody listening. I have heard recently that one of his albums, I think his 1976 album, Station to Station, I've heard people mention that, that there's a code in there. There's some sort of uh, encoding of Kabbalistic, mystical sensibilities, and whether it's true or not, nobody's been able to crack it. If anybody out there has listened, I mean, and has written about it or wants to share it, I'd be extremely curious to to dig into something like that. But anyways, enough of David Bowie for the time being. Right, and that is a key album, but I would suggest that you're not going to grab anything from Bowie that doesn't add to what we're talking about anyhow. Sure, sure. Just a, a pet project, I guess, on, on my end. Okay, so up next we've got the Super Bowl. Uh, this happened in San Francisco, California. The date of that was February 7th, 2016. The matchup of the Super Bowl was the uh, Carolina Panthers versus the Denver Broncos. Um, during halftime, we had uh, musicians such as Coldplay, Bruno Mars, and Beyonce, as well as uh, Lady Gaga. She was the, um, I should say, she opened up the Super Bowl. She performed the uh, 
Star Spangled Banner or the, um, I think that's the name of that intro. Uh, Denver ended up winning the game 24 to 10, summation to 3-4. Peyton Manning ended up winning, I believe, his second Super Bowl. Uh, any thoughts on any of that as far as um, any of the research that either of you have looked into that one? Well, before before Jason jumps on it, uh, I'll state categorically, uh, whenever you see something like the Super Bowl, uh, the entertainers that come in are agents of the system that are recognized, badged, um, official, probably within bloodlines of some way, if not simply have climbed up to, to the level at which we see them. Um, these are the same old, you know, same old people we always see, isn't it? Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars came up quick. It's mm-hmm. almost like that dude's a reincarnation of James Brown or something. He came up so quick. Don't know what to make of that guy. Beyonce, of course, we all know who that is. People like the Jungle Surfer have done quite a bit on whether Beyonce is even a man or a woman. Um, so many people have trouble with this, but I would suggest open your damn mind and go listen to what the man's saying. You don't have to swallow it, but man, you better consider it because this is precisely the kind of nonsense that we see come from these people. Um, I'm not much of a sports guy. What can you add, Jason? Yeah, I'm absolutely not a sports guy, but the one thing that we can all agree on easily with the Super Bowl is that absolutely zillions of people are going to watch it. So best opportunity uh, probably for the whole year for the uh, the controllers to get in whatever message they want to do. And I did watch, I didn't watch the, the, the game, but, um, a few months ago I watched the, uh, ceremony or not the ceremony, but the, um, the halftime thing. And the whole thing would just look like one great big ritual as always, you know, and that's what it always happens. These, these games always have the, the biggest players that, that like are completely sold out to the system beyond all belief. And they're always doing something that's absolutely bizarre and weird. It's never just like a really good show, you know, it's, it's no, always something no. that's that's crazy and creepy, and I can't believe people like even the average person watching this doesn't like pick up on that because it's it's very obvious that these things aren't just normal performances. Right, and they are rigged. The outcome of the game is rigged. The people who got into the game are rigged, and of course, you've already pointed out the big celebrities like Peyton Manning, who mm-hmm. are insiders. Um, but I have a feeling that uh, James is going to bring up the Bowie connection here. Um, was was that on the on the hit list? Yeah, definitely. That was the uh, the big commercial. I think it was voted the best commercial. A lot of people really had some very high sentimental sentiments towards this commercial it was the audi commercial called choosing the moon brings out the best of us so as we had previously discussed there's this idea that when you see imagery of the moon the full moon or whatnot in mass media it's conveying a sensibility of insanity sleep and death Um, and this commercial is basically taking place presently i believe and it's focused on a former apollo nasa astronaut who's in his older years he's checked out He's bored with life. Um, his son comes over to the house, his father's house, brings a brand new Audi, um, and can tell that his father's checked out and basically invites his father to drive this new car that he had purchased. So uh, starting with that scene, uh, the, the father's in the car, the, the ex-astronauts driving the car, the son, you begin to play David Bowie's Starman. So now you've got some uh, uh, sentiments going on because of the recently passed David Bowie. So everybody's currently in David Bowie phase. Uh, the car continues to like career down the road and it's heading towards like a full moon in the uh, kind of hovering in the horizon. So my initial thought on that was, isn't that interesting that um, given all the anti-Apollo, all the 
anti-NASA moon landing stuff that's happened with a, a lot of people considering the moon hoax so forth. You've got this commercial that's solidifying this idea that this actually did happen. You're combining elements of, uh, you know, sleep, you're bored, you're driving, now you're going to the full moon, you're, you're having flashbacks to um, the astronaut who was in this Atlas V or whatever, the uh, the Saturn V rocket that was going up. Um, they never actually show that individual, the actor who was playing the astronaut as a younger individual getting into orbit. They just show an astronaut who's basically getting propelled up into uh, the stratosphere. So interesting. I don't know if you guys have any ideas on that, but I thought that was really a curious insertion. Um, and it yeah. got a lot of attention after the fact. Well, it seems like they're just trying to keep the the whole thing going, you know. Uh, there's no doubt. I mean, we see it all. What we're what we're seeing here is the reinforcing and the social engineering of the moon nonsense. Um, but we're also seeing the encoding of what the moon really, the role the moon really plays. Um, and even the name of the car, the Luno Quattro, implies the four phases of the moon, four quarters of the moon. But again, uh, Bowie was so key in pushing the UFO nonsense. Um, he's even written the song. There's star man waiting in the sky. We'd love to come and see us, but he thinks he'll blow our minds but not only that ground control to major tom here am i floating in a tin can again encoding the idea of water but echoing the idea that we've been to space um and the, the one of the most prime thing about bringing up all this old classic bowie and leveraging off his death as you said is the idea of nostalgia pulling all those baby baby boomers back to that music which is an aspect of social engineering setting these false ideas firmly into the subconscious Mm-hmm. Well, even the whole the, the title of the commercial, choosing out choosing the moon brings out the best of us. And when I looked into the current status of Audi, this is referring to that Audi Lunar Quattro. Um, the project there is that there is a group of part-time scientists working on sending a remote-controlled rover to the moon. So, you're choosing out choosing the moon brings out the best of us, but at the same time, you only have to deal with it part-time because it's uh, it, it's just kind of an interesting. <laughs> Immersion of words there. Part-time lies, right? It's yeah. it's all it's all lies to me. I mean, what you're looking at is the complete maintenance on lies that need to be maintained till the end of time, and it's a complete window into the insidious methods of social engineering that set those spells into your mind using the celebrity, using the recent death, using nostalgia, just bringing out the whole toolbox because at the end of the day. You will see the most encoding and social engineering and the most popular things, of which things like a good movie, the the Super Bowl, the the baseball World Series, Big Bang, anything that gets the most minds paying attention is where the real meat and potatoes full onslaught is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there it is. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, next up, I just a, a movie that I wanted to point out. Released on February 12th of 2016 is the Marvel film Deadpool. Um, this is interesting in terms of it being the first movie that's been basically adapted on the, the Marvel Universe that received an R rating. Uh, you probably didn't go to it, but I did go to it, just curious to see what happened. I mean, there was a lot of gratuitous sex, a lot of graphic violence, um, etc. And it was interesting to me, I'm not, and I'm not saying parents are awful or so forth, but there were a lot of young children that were brought to this uh, movie experience in this little tiny town in Wisconsin. And there were some really graphic things happening on TV. And I can't even imagine what an eight, nine, 10 year old who perhaps came in expecting to see the new Captain America, uh, seeing this character Deadpool, who is basically an, uh, a mercenary. He's a anti-hero. There's 
there's really no good, I guess, in his nature, but yet he is somehow propelled to be a hero in the Marvel uh, universe. But um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I saw the movie, and you're right. It, the whole thing is just um, it, it's a it's a modern action flick. You know, it's there. There's definitely a lot of sexual scenes, violence, and all typical. And and I think well, Deadpool has never been portrayed as like uber good guy. That's that's the shtick of the character is that. Um, he kind of rebels against the goody goodies of like the X Men, and that even played out in the movie with uh, the Colossus yeah. character, where yeah. he, you know Colossus is trying to be the really good good guy, the virtuous guy, and here's uh, Deadpool being what he is—he's a total smartass, constantly mm-hmm. mouthing off to everybody and just not giving a crap about any kind of morals or values, just doing what he wants to do. So, th- and this is being portrayed as the hero of the movie, no, no less. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. You know, I didn't see the whole movie, but I did see some of it enough to know that I did not want that in my mind. Um, it reminds me a bit of the Clockwork Orange idea, um, where in Clockwork Orange, what you see in the beginning is mindless violence and sex demonstrating a society that's been pulled down into its lower limbic or animal mind. And then, of course, at the end of Clockwork Orange, when they're going to fix him, what do they do? They lock his eyes open in front of television monitors to use media to reprogram him. But to get back to Deadpool, um, one of the primary things you're seeing there is the lowering of a society. And the younger the, the people that can get exposed to this, whether they're fooled into the theaters or whether uh, parents weren't expecting to see the, the violence and sex that is shrouded in uh, bad one-liner jokes, uh, this is all about the limbic mind. Gratuitous, senseless violence and sex taking a higher mind uh culture and lowering it uh for the most part that's what i can say about it but i watched a whopping 15 minutes of it before i said to myself i do not want this in my mind so there it is interesting um yeah i would uh it was just to me it was very interesting i think it broke some records it was released around the time of i think valentine's day of this year and of all things you know it's this very uh interesting character from the marvel mythos uh, up next for another bullet point of discussion, I've got the 58th annual Grammy Awards that were uh, recorded or performed on February 15th of 2016 in L.A. Um, I believe the host was, uh, I looked into this, LL Cool J. Um, one of the big winners of the year was Taylor Swift's 1989, which is in 1989. It's interesting. Again, you have this nostalgia in the 80s being promoted. Uh, also, uh, the thing that I thought of interest, um, somebody has shot me the first, I think it's the first minute and five seconds of Lady Gaga's David Bowie tribute. And I know Crow and I, we've talked about this in a previous episode, but um, very, very interesting. You have uh, Lady Gaga, who's in kind of a Snapchat-esque uh, mode on television. You have an eye, you have a spider crawling out of the eye, you've got the spider crawling around and embedding itself into lady gaga's brain and then you have an image of the the moon the earth and there's this lunar wave that's like moving over the surface of the lunar move uh, really interesting and it really did play quite a bit into some of the hattie bow material that's been discussed uh, over the last year and a half or so 
Why well, thoughts can, on that one? Yeah, I can jump on it. Um, I remember when you first sent me the video because I was not aware of it, not being a big sports guy or a big TV guy. Um, but we did see aspects of the lunar wave. We did see aspects of enlightenment as pulled from Buddhism and other Eastern traditions, which, again, so much of Masonic tradition or occult tradition pulls from to include the ideas that are probably wrapped up in Kabbalah. Um, they all share common cause in my view of the ancient Elysian mysteries or whatever they may have been. In other words, they're all playing ditties on the same ideas uh, one way or another. But... Um, the spider's idea is, is uh, I'm not sure what to make of that. And I actually spoke with the jungle surfer who's so good at kind of breaking apart these constructs. Um, and I came at it that it almost seems like the spiders are representing the young Hollywood uh, more so maybe than they used to in the classic rock age. They're, they're imbibing bands like No Doubt and uh, these younger, hipper bands now and the whole Hollywood scene, even seeing the Boris the Spider pin always on one of the Who members. Um, it's not clear what the division is there, but there absolutely is some symbolism, and it was all covered by Lady Gaga. And of course, Gaga's almost certainly bloodlined into what she does, if she's a she. Well, mm -hmm. she's if you see her doing anything, <clears throat> she's probably one of the biggest sellouts ever. You know, she just everything about her. If you see her, they're doing something with her. Yeah, of course. Um, and again, you know, it's it's certain people that you look at. Like the, I've been actually recording. Believe it or not, people may find this funny. Um, Crow is recording the Graham Norton show. Um, I decided for three months I was going to record the Graham Norton show and watch at least part of it because what I realized was going on is pretty much in your face. And I'll give you an example. And this relates to the kind of Lady Gaga-esque, you know, characters at that stature that we see. Um, they had Ben Affleck. Um, shoot, now I've forgotten who else. But they had Ben Affleck, who was going to be the main highest guy. On the Graham Norton show, the guy sitting on the couch closest to Graham Norton is the highest ranking guy. And generally, there's a music act at the end who typically sense, sits farthest away from Graham Norton. Well, in this episode, Ben Affleck held the honored position until Sting came to play, and then he scooted Ben Affleck over to take the honored position next to Graham Norton. Um, you've got to realize they have private individuals come on to tell a story, and if they don't like the story, they dump them rudely out of the chair, these commoners that come in to tell their tale. But to get back to the, the structure and hierarchy of what Graham Norton's doing, it all centers around the royal family of Britain, and so when they asked Ben Affleck if he had anything to do with royalty, he launched into this whole story. First, he says, well, yeah, but I'm not supposed to talk about that. But then he launches into this whole story, how he took his kids to this like Chuck E. Cheese type place. I forget the name of it. So his kids could play. And then he noticed, man, I'm underdressed. And then he noticed, wait, what are all these guys in suits with earpieces in? And then he noticed, my God, my kids are playing with the royal George and Charlotte or whoever they are. And I'm like, oh, my God. So you accidentally stumbled into a place, Ben Affleck, and found out your kids were playing with the Royals. Really? So then Sting launches into it when he is asked what he has to do with the Royals. And he launches into this whole nonsense of how he keeps bees. Just so anyone knows, whenever you hear famous people talking about bees, they're referencing a queen because bees have queens. You'll remember Napoleon Bonaparte with bees in his shield and coat of arms. Anyhow, he's asked if he was ever stung. And Sting launches into this whole thing, how, yeah, I keep bees. And a bee landed on the crown of my head and stung me. 
And it was this most exquisite pain. Anyone can go back and look at this. I'm not even lying. And, of course, he launches into another story where when he was a kid in this shipbuilding town, he knew he didn't want to just be another shipbuilder or, you know, these lowly jobs. And the only famous people that came was royalty when they were launching a ship. And, of course, the Queen Mother came in her limousine while they were lined up on the street, locking eyes with Sting. And at that moment, his life was changed because he knew he wanted to be in the limo and not a shipbuilder. You see, they're flaunting in your face this royal... British royalty nonsense, but it clearly reaches into the American hierarchy of acting. Um, that was kind of a long-winded thing I did, but I said it for a reason, because it is getting less veiled all the time, and Graham, Graham Norton is the pinnacle for showing you where the hierarchy lies and how it relates to the royal family of Britain. So there's my long-winded <laughs> monologue. <laughs> and I wonder if Graham Norton is connected, too, because he's not a very good host. He's kind of uh, annoying and over-the-top dramatic kind of a guy you know i i don't know what to say about that because i just kind of stumbled um on it where i was looking at all these new shows that were catching steam in america from the bbc of course the bbc having been founded by the british royal family um so all broadcasting in britain has always been under the aegises of the royal families first television shows having been broadcast from a castle and one of the first dramas ever broadcast was uh, what's it called? Something to do with the Queen, the Queen's Secret. I, I covered it in my last show, I've forgotten, but you know, there's no separating it. There is no separating royalty from Hollywood or the world's version of Hollywood, whatever that might be in Britain. It's the BBC. Hmm. Well, and going back to even Lady Gaga, I believe she's going to be headlining next year's Super Bowl, uh, January 2017. So that That'll be an interesting one to uh, watch, see what kind of symbolic messages are rolled out in that uh, event. So FYI for everybody out there. Um, okay, well, and speaking of Ben Affleck, we go on to the next big blockbuster of the year, Batman versus Superman. This was released on March 20th of 2016. Uh, have either of you watched that? Any thoughts on that? I have, yeah. Go ahead. Um, that was an interesting movie that... They crammed so much storyline pulled from various uh, st just different stories from, from Superman and Batman over the years. They, they, it felt very convoluted. Like, I couldn't believe when I finally watched it that they squeezed that much in there. That was the first thing I noticed. But I, I held off watching it for the longest time because I couldn't believe that they chose Ben Affleck to be Batman, who I just think is a horrible actor. He's just the same person in every movie he's in. So I didn't go see it for the longest time, and I finally just got around to watching it with somebody else um, not too, too long ago. But there, there's... I don't know. They, it, felt, it felt really forced to me. Um, sure. I guess it's, it's even hard for me to explain. Like, when I watched it, I was just like, oh my god, they're just jumping from one thing to the next to the next to the next. And it's like... The thing that the, the, was the big focus of Batman versus Superman, that was like a really big storyline. Um, I think that came out in the 90s, but I could be wrong. Maybe it was the 80s. Um, I, I'm not I think doing... it was 80s. Yeah, I think it was 80s with uh, Frank Miller. Right. I'm way more of a Marvel guy. When, well, I was when I was a kid, I should say, than, than DC. So I only read a couple of the, the big storylines way back when. But um, I don't know. Just the whole thing felt very forced to me. And uh if it wasn't Ben Affleck as Batman, I probably would have been able to enjoy it from an entertainment point of view a lot more because sure. he just was exactly what I thought he'd be. He was Ben Affleck. And I was like, that's the one thing I really liked about the previous Batman ones was uh, I just thought that um, 
Christian Bale was a really good Batman. So, Well, let me try to put this in some context. What you're looking at with any of the DC or Marvel mega movie-making machines that have pretty much perched themselves on the top of Hollywood is that you are seeing the lowering of a worldwide mind and down into the animal limbic systems. And what's worse is they have now kind of homogenized comics. So in other words, you watch something like Big Bang, here's all these PhDs, what do they do? They collect dolls and comic books. That's what a PhD does now. These supposed people at the highest strata of our culture are comic book geeks. That's okay. They can act like kids. This is the lowering of the adult mind, of the grown-up mind. But Batman in particular is complete symbolism um, for the times we find ourselves. As a matter of fact, anyone can go to Crow Triple Seven Radio to my blog or to the Higher Side Chats. There's a handful of articles written there. One of them involves the very first Batman. Um, what was Michael Keaton? Now, there's an interesting character, um, and anyone who plays Batman, um, look at them, because they are, in fact, pitchers for the ball game. Um, but Michael Keaton was not even famous yet. He was with David Letterman, who was not even on the Letterman show yet, with Mary Tyler Moore singing a Paul McCartney song. Oh, um, sure. Paul McCartney and Wings, watch the town explode, comes the words from Mary Tyler Moore's mouth. And as her arm sweeps by the football jerseys that say 9 and 11, there's David Letterman, who retired after 33 years, and the first Batman, Michael Keaton. So you can see what has happened. And, you know, I could sit here all day and urge people not to partake and not to idolize and not to pay for these movies, but maybe sure. that will take time. Go look at the article where I break these down. I do include the clip that shows Mary Tyler Moore echoing 9-11 some 30-some-odd years before it happens in New York City. Um, there's, there's what the D.C., Marvel Universe partially is up to these days. And by the way, very few people understand that almost every major character in a comic book that you've ever seen was invented by a Jewish person for some reason. Well, then that's interesting to bring that up because uh, one of the underlying mythos of this whole DC creation, this Batman versus Superman, is it's basically setting up this Jack Kirby creation known as Darkseid. Um, it was a uh, character that he developed... I think in 1971, and uh, it's the idea that there were old gods. The old gods um, fell within itself. They basically imploded, um, and from that were like two new worlds, and you had or, uh, the god Orion, a superhero called Orion, and then there was the, the negativity dark side. And there's a scene in Batman versus Superman where the character of Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne, he's having a dream, and he's basically in some near future or maybe some parallel universe. I'm not sure, but there's a symbol of Omega on the ground, and it's basically inferring that um, if you want to call Batman the transhumanist model, he's an individual who needs technology in order to um, you know, compete in this realm of superheroes. He is basically the leader of humanity, and he's attempting to basically uh, get some secret weapon, some kryptonite, I guess, for lack of a better word, for Superman, who's converted over to this dark side. So, um, and it was also interesting in the extra scenes. I don't know if you saw the extra scenes, but there's a scene where one of Darkseid's generals um, is talking to the character of Lex Luthor. He's got a hologram, and there's like three cubes there um, in front of him. So you've got this idea of the cube. Um, going back to the New Gods, the Jack Der Kirby creation from 1970, I believe that's implying what he developed called the mother box it's a mystical 
smartphone looking item that the character of Orion and Darkseid are fighting for. Um, basically, it's this technology that is able to create vortexes. Um, they're called boom tubes. So you can traverse the universe through these boom tubes that are created from the mother box. Um, I guess I thought it was kind of curious to see where they're going to take that just from a kind of a mythological standpoint. Uh, but, the other important thing to point out with the um... The, the new Superman movie, Man of Steel, which carried over into this one, is a the whole thing was was eugenics. It's all about eugenics, like everything, especially Man of Steel. It was all about um, the people on Krypton rebelling against uh, the people that they augmented and all that, and that that definitely spilled over into uh, the the big battle at the end of uh, Batman versus Superman, where they brought back the. Uh, the nasty creature and Lex Luthor again was playing around sure. with DNA and genetics and all that. So it's like this whole whole eugenics transhumanism thing is completely laced through it all. Yes. Yeah, that there's no doubt. And to be completely forthright, um, one of the biggest issues I have when we do episodes like this is that just to talk about the things we're going to talk about, we're going to lead people to then go out and pay money or get involved with these things that are not here to help us. Um, there's no way around it that I see. I mean, in the way I would talk about it by myself, it's always an attempt not to lead people into that, but to demonstrate that these things are not here to help us. But the funny thing about what's going on now in Hollywood with these comic book carriers characters basically owning the highest echelons of Hollywood and the movie making, you know, pyramid, uh, pun intended, is that they were all invented by Jewish guys. And I just always wonder, will white people or regular people or black people or people of color ever be smart enough to make something in culture that matters? That's a joke, by the way. Um, but what we see in the creation of all these things that are not here to help us, that are socially programming and doing other things, casting spells, is that these were invented back in the day to all occur in a certain universe. In other words, all these storylines were going to occur in this universe. So when we come up to the modern age, all these movies are octopuses, you know, squids, spider webbing out, but they're all connected back to draw everyone in to this imaginary nonsense. But there's there's my little disclaimer, I guess. Mm -hmm. No, understandable. Yeah, I guess... Uh... My recommendation, just from my experience, is if, if you do have any interests, you definitely have to keep an open mind. You have to be critical. Don't buy what the media is presenting. But um, at least from like a symbolic encoding thing, it's yeah, I, I find it very interesting. So, um, and that leads to the next piece of mass media. Um, Crow, I remember I had talked to you. It was the, the whole thing that uh, this is, is in regard to the Hennessy versus VS Picards. This is the cognac commercial featuring the Firmament Spaces water meme. <clears throat> I hadn't mentioned this to you before, but the way I discovered this commercial was actually uh, quite funny. You had been interviewing the former NBA uh, basketball player yep. and talking about it being rigged and so forth. Um, I had heard that, I think that Sunday, and then there was a discussion that you went into regarding Spaces water. Um, I end up Later that day, for whatever reason, turning on the Oklahoma City game, thinking, well, I'm going to check this out and see, you know, if it's just curious because of the conversation you had had. <clears throat> so while this game's on, I'm outside grilling uh, some food for my wife and I, and uh, this rabbit hops up to me, this, and it just stares at me, this rabbit. I'm like, <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of odd, you know, whatever else. Go back inside, watch the show, uh, the NBA uh, I think it was the Western Finals, and sure enough, this commercial, the wild rabbit, the the Hennessy rabbit, and you've got this. I had this very strange synchronicity of like 
that day's with your interview leading into the Hennessy commercial featuring Spaces Water, the Firmament, etc. Um, it was very, very interesting. I guess when you're in tune with stuff like that, it just maybe it shocks you a little bit more than you expect. But uh, well, the commercial, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, there are no coincidences, but go ahead. Um, so just the background on the commercial, um, it featured two Picards, uh, August Picard, who was a Swiss-born physicist. His claim to fame was that he ascended to uh, an altitude of 51,775 feet in like a prototype air cabin high-altitude balloon. Um, that's the first part of the commercial. And then at the second, on the back end, it features his son, Jacques Picard. Um, he descended the Maranana Trench to a then record 35,814 feet in a submarine built and uh, funded by the U.S. Navy. Um, and just briefly, in case people haven't seen that commercial, it's, it's got a very interesting first half to it. There's this, this balloon that features August Picard. He's accelerating into the atmosphere. Uh, the balloon blows up. The capsule continues to move forward. Um, as you see the capsule move into even the higher portion of space, you see what looks like a firmament above uh, the disk of the Earth. I would even argue that it, it doesn't even necessarily look round. You could say that the Earth looks like a disk. Um, as it gets closer and closer to this firmament, water droplets begin to form around this prototype uh, capsule. Uh, the capsule then hits this firmament. You can see it break through um, water, and it's basically looking like, to me, that this object that's been sent up into outer space is breaking into the uh, primordial waters of the abyss or the universe and so forth. Um, it was an interesting, really interesting commercial, and, and like I said, it was for me, it was interesting that that sequence of events happened, and I noticed that. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, in, in my view, what you're looking at here is the encoding of reality with the as above, so below idea. Um, you know, you've got one one of these guys, supposed people from our history, going as deep as anyone's been, and the other one going up so high uh, to break all the records, and of course showing that there is a firmament of some sort, and that space is in fact water. But what's more interesting, there is no coincidences in my view in this world. Um, this came out the same week, I believe, uh, that I announced space is likely liquid or water, and so did Brian Mullen. Uh, within, I think, a 24-hour period, independent of each other, uh, both of us using a different method to get there, Mr. Mullen using science, uh, myself using direct first-hand observation, and then uh, language and the encoding of media to finally announce uh, when I said that space is likely water. Last thing I looked at, having been the JFK speech that we are going to the moon, where he says things like, we will set sail on this sea, this new ocean, this type of nautical language. But again, it's a strange thing when you see, and what is there's like four versions of the commercial, I think, some yeah. longer, yeah, some longer than others. But we're looking at a booze commercial where they're going to echo what I consider to be closer to reality. And we're not really seeing this in movies. There's a whole kind of weird aspect to what gets addressed in a feature-length film and then what gets pumped out in a 15- or a 30-second commercial. But in, in my view, um, there's absolutely no coincidence. It was that week where that idea really hit the world on YouTube and through media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jason, any thoughts on that one? Uh, just out of curiosity, I, I know the spelling is different, but is that also a reference to why they named uh, yes. Patrick Stewart's <laughs> character Picard? Yeah. Yep. Is that where they got that from? Yeah. That's, it, my research said that, yeah. 
Okay, because yeah, it's, it it's kind of like that name jumps out. It's just like obviously everybody knows who you know Jean Luc Picard is from Star Trek: The Next Generation, and that would make sense because if these uh, historical figures are supposed to be explorers, well then that's why that would get all tied together. But I didn't know personally off the top of my head. So look at look at the deeper meaning there. Um, having done all the Tavistock work, um, the first Star Trek is so credited with having formed the view of what most of us consider space to be. And, of course, the next generation replaced the first Star Trek uh, with Picard, who is echoing, you know, it's an echo of this commercial actually addressing what space really is likely made of. And, uh, of course, the TV show leading us all astray. Yeah, yeah. And uh, two other items, too, that I thought were curious, and I don't know if you've seen this, but um, another researcher on YouTube pointed out the fact that both the older and the younger Picard had masonic pinky rings in uh, in the commercial um is the the older individual the father is accelerating into the upper reaches of earth's atmosphere you can see him clutching kind of a brace wrap or some sort of a leather strap and you can see a small pinky ring on his hand and then when they show the younger son underneath the, the ocean he too is having a small pinky ring so i thought that was curious <laughs> that they decided to include that um, and then there was also that very strange image of, I don't know if you want to call it the Demiurge or the Artificer, but is basically as the capsule breaks through the firmament, there's this really interesting imagery. It almost looks like an egg exploding or, or, or like an eyeball or that this capsule is going into this eyeball. I, it, it was curious. I, I threw that out there for some feedback. Uh, didn't really get much in terms of that, but uh, very interesting commercial. I think everybody should check that out and, and give it a thought. Well, I mean, it's almost like you got to have your little credentials on your pinky finger just to go to the vault or arch, arch of the sky, pun intended. Um, you know, in some ways, when we see the quick flashes of the Masonic, uh, you know, involvement, it's almost like you're getting an echo of something that's a little less nonsense and a little more geared at the hidden reality, which, you know, where we all reside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, up next is the big one, uh, the beginning of Purple Magic. Prince, the artist known as Prince, dies on April 21st, 2016 in Chanhas in Minnesota. I'm sure everybody's aware of some of the uh, thoughts behind that. Died at the age of 57. Um, this kind of ushers in what I think some of us think is the beginning of a purple magical reign that is featured quite frequently from here on out. Um, any, you guys want to talk to this point at all as far as his death? You want to jump, Jason? Well, I remember I was on my way back from a conference in April uh, having barbecue in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and uh, that popped up on my newsfeed on my iPhone, and I was like, oh, another one, huh? Is this that what this year is going to be all about? Uh, and, and indeed, we, we did see a lot of uh, major celebrities did pass away this year, so that was that was my first initial thought, and I'm like, oh, okay, so is this one going to be fishy too? Is this going to be weird like, like the Bowie stuff? But that was all my initial thoughts about it. This one is like one of the most major milestone celebrity deaths in my view. First of all, someone like Bowie dies in the same year, but seems to take a backseat to Prince, who, sure, one of the greatest performers that ever lived, but in no way, shape, or form had the cultural sway over the time span and the regularity that Bowie did. But nonetheless, I mean, uh, James, let's play yes or no for a minute. Um, did Prince die on the Queen's 90th birthday? Uh, yes, I believe so. Yes. James, 
Was there a beer released by the royal house that the queen is head of called Purple Rain the day yes. Prince died? <laughs> yes. Did Niagara Falls flare up purple in conjunction with all this? Yes. I mean, yep. we could play this yes or no all day, can't we? <laughs> um, the, the, this is the nonsense. And for Prince, you know, what's funny is, is Purple Rain for me. And by the way, there is a whole thing in the Tavistock research about mu recording artists, musical people, using Rain Man, which we should all be familiar with having been echoed in the Tom Cruise, Dustin Hoffman movie. Uh, Rain Man is the shadowy figure and the umbrella coming into it. And I know this is a bit ancillary from Prince, but Purple Rain plays into this idea, although with Prince, Purple is clearly the royal connection, and this was all tributing to the Queen's 90th birthday and the Queen's control over this country, which most people think is free of Britain. It is not. Anyhow, the idea of Rain Man has been echoed endlessly through Rihanna and all this new rap music, um, and the umbrella symbolizing so much of it. For the longest time, I had considered the umbrella. People claimed it was the pyramid symbology and all this other stuff. But you see, I looked up the root and the etymology of umbrella, which plays into the rain and the rain man idea. And it is casting you in a shadow. And then it struck me when the word umbrella broke down to umbra. When the moon has an eclipse, the shadow that is going over the moon is called the umbra. And then it all started to crystallize for me. But to pull this back to Prince... I don't think we have seen, and there may be other people who, who may not agree with this, but in the modern age, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe we could go back to Elvis or something. In the modern age, I don't think we've seen the death of a superstar, the staged death of a superstar that had more far-reaching implications than Prince's, even up to the modern nonsense Trump election. By the way, we should cover the election a little bit before we get out of here. Um in that, uh, the day after the day, day after, Hillary and her husband Bill show up wearing purple, claiming they're uniting blue and red. Clearly, mm. more royal nonsense being encoded into our elections. But th mm. there's my nickel and a half. And I started looking into the color purple from, a, which, if you want to call it a spellcraft perspective, um, some notes that I think I'd like to get out there as we kind of continue on through the rest of the year because Purple keeps making an appearance over and over and over again in the media. Um, it's basically from a, a standpoint on television, it's a mixing of red and blue. Um, on a color scale, Purple was historically associated with sexual and violent passions. Um, Young called uh, this color the mystic color, a mixture of red being instinct, blue being spirit, um, this violet purple represents what he called the psychoid archetype or um, quotation marks here, the bridge to matter in general. So it's almost as if there's this, uh, this color is associated with like the abyss or the void or, or however you want to call it. Um, I found a book called Real Magic by these authors called The Bone Wits. And they said purple magic is ultimately um, the visible view of ultraviolet magic. Again, purple is associated with violent and physical passions. Um, it's a mixture of love, lust, hate, fear, anger, and ecstasy. And what I thought interest was interesting is purple being attached to ultraviolet magic. Um, this author goes on to say that this is representative of the psychic realms. Again, Young's collective unconscious, or however you want to put that. It's known as the crackling flashes of pure power in the psychic realm. It's often confused with black magic. It is the magic of power in politics, strong emotions, psychic power. Um, and <clears throat> as a side note, I found a, a really interesting 
article from the early 20th century by the Illuminating Engineer, which is a curious title. Um, there was a study done that showed that Russian prisons used the color purple, color violet, as a means of torture and a means to destroy the mind of prisoners. So um, very interesting that this color was being used, um, and, and we'll see that it's being used during these um, you know, false flag events and so forth, but just yeah. kind of an interesting color uh, that kind of featured frequently throughout the year. Well, everything you just said feeds into the idea of royalty, and we all know that there have been many times in history we're told the only people allowed to wear purple, um, even in Israel, from the, the snail ink, you know, that bluish purple purple uh, being associated with royalty and death. But uh, I had written an article back that covered this, and James, you may remember better than I because I'm struggling to remember exactly, but I know you and I talked about it, that the light wave of the purple that I had sampled was falling in the 44 100 nanometers or something like that range do you remember it's the lower end of the the spectrum yes it's got the shorter wavelength right and it was in the 44 encoding death when it already symbolized royalty and death and the other things that you were talking about the abyss and black magic -y type stuff but i also discovered and th this play this is a hell of a thing to think about um when you're making purple in certain, they call it a secondary, oh, shoot, I'm going to get the, the names of things wrong, but the idea is this. Normally, you can take a couple colors, make another color, but when you're making purple, you need more outside components. And I know I'm being very general about this because I don't want to butcher it. I'm not just able to pull it from memory. But having said this, um, gosh dang it, I lost my train of thought. Um, do you remember any of the conversation where we were pulling it into the 44 death doors range, James? Uh, a bit. We were, you know, we also talked about the fact that it's very, it's a very violent color on the, the oh, eye. I yeah, I, I got it. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I got it. So, you know, you've got this thing that's not like a typical color where you just grab a couple things, but look at this idea. When I was a kid, the primary colors were yellow, blue, and red. Now that I'm not a kid anymore, the primary colors are green, blue, and red because we've come into the digital age. And for whatever reason, and there are many, many ideas I could get into here, for the most part, most people are being taught that primary who aren't in art school are being taught or being, you know, conditioned to accept green as a primary. Well, green is not a primary, but in the digital age, it is a primary. To get green, you need yellow and blue, which makes it a secondary color. So this all plays into what we're saying, particularly when you begin to, to understand the influence of purple used in the way that James was just talking about. In other words, there's nothing good about the color purple. And I would suggest... Whenever you see purple in the end of 2016 and 2017, you're looking at the more in-your-face takeover of royalty uh, than has ever been exhibited before. It's been hidden in the background. So just for the average person listening, you see purple, you better damn well step back and understand what you're looking at. But further, in digital coloration, which I in which I am an expert, to make purple, you do not mix blue and red. If you go into a digital color palette and you mix blue and red, you'll get this weird magenta e color. Um, people who have Photoshop or other tools, go make purple and pay attention to how you're getting it. Anyhow, um, that was a bit convoluted because I can't remember specifically the article, but I do have it posted. Well, I think the summation of all that is that purple is being seen more and more and more um, just in yes. all media. Like as since Prince's death, you see it. And not even in relation to Prince, just you just see it being used more. So that that right there should be very telling to everybody. 
Mm-hmm. Right. You're you're seeing royalty. You're seeing the un, unveiled hand of royalty revealing itself. Um, and for a, a world community to understand the purple one died on the queen's birthday, who's releasing purple rain. I mean, it goes on and on. It is, is almost unconscionable to consider that the majority of us are so damn low minded. They can't see what's going on here. And, uh, you know, you think America is this independent place. I got news for you. It's turning purple and it will continue to do so. Yeah, definitely uh, something to pay attention to. <clears throat> and I know uh, Zachary Hubbard has mentioned multiple times that he thinks that this NFL Super Bowl will consist of the Minnesota Vikings and the Indianapolis Colts. Minnesota Vikings, of course, are purple. They're the purple pride. They're purple of the north. Um, yeah, I'll have to see how this all plays out for the rest of the year. Yeah, it's a dangerous game, man, forecasting. But truth is, um, when we are getting rid of our diapers and we begin to recognize the code at a higher level, we should be able to know things like this. And, of course, that would skew the whole system. Uh, When someone accurately begins to be able to forecast based on the code that people absolutely put together, I mean, people could walk into Vegas and bet on games and win every time. So it's it's a strange time we live in. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a little bit side note, I just wanted to point this uh, interesting thing out on Adult Swim. There was a kind of a comedic clip that showed up in May 2nd of 2016, filled with lots of Masonic imagery and, and coding and so forth. Um, it also hinted on octaves, which, of course, ties back to, you know, if you want to call it the Hattie Bow stuff, but other philosophers and so forth. It was called Live at the Necropolis, Lords of the Synth. Um, I just found it interesting. It's, it's a pretty good video i recommend everybody check it out but it's filled with uh images of zorro who is um basically a masonic creation based off of a masonic english spy by the name of william lamport um z was uh through some research i found stands for ziza or or ziza or shining the divine sparkle in human beings it's a symbol of genius capable of illuminating humanity and it features uh, an actor playing gerald ford another mason who of course um nominated one of the Rockefellers for the office of the VP. Uh, The thing that I thought interesting, too, about this was uh, some of the fictional characters that were used in this clip. Um, I ran it through uh, a website called jamatrix.org, I believe. Right. Um, And what you can do is you key in a word, and then it'll give you equivalencies, and it'll formulate different uh, wording. So, um, In Jamatria. In Gematria, yeah. And so I thought it would be a curious uh, experiment to take these fictional characters that were inserted into this Adult Swim uh, sm- promotional film or small film and see what kind of results came out. And it was actually somewhat revealing and fit with the narrative of the um, the film. So the film is basically you have three synthesizer legends. Uh, they're competing in some sort of an Illuminati-type gathering where people look like uh, they have the masks from Eyes Wide Shut. Um, you know, again, you're featuring these characters like Gerald Ford, Zorro, and so forth. And as they're competing, they're they're synthesizing against one another, and they somehow attract Haley's Comet. So Haley's Comet then is being sucked, being attracted to Earth uh, by these octaves that are being generated and so forth. And so not to get into the details, but it, it was basically a precursor to some sort of climatic uh, apocalypse, apocalyptic ending. But just very high level, uh, some of the characters included Aaron Tangram. Um, from a Gematria standpoint, he also relates to the Book of Enoch, the first seal. The other commentary's name is Zen Centauri. Um, he is known as the Octave Collector. Again, Pythagoras equivalency, the seventh seal, 
equivalency. Another character was called Rodolfo, the Clockmaker, the Second Coming of Christ, I Am the Lord Your God, Esoteric Delights. Another character, a pulsating ball of energy, a morning star in your heart, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, which of course is a David Bowie song, the divine operating system, and then Panos the Wonder Child. Um, and this was curious. I think I think we'll all get a kick out of this one. When I ran that through this calculator, it included hits included Gematria Calculator, The Son of Man, The Magnificent Triple Seven, and Spider, Spider, Spider. So uh, <laughs> just a... Uh, I, I did that really as just an experiment and uh, really thought that the results were, were very interesting. You know, what's funny about all that, um, besides the fact that it's really showing the underlying truth that we live in a construct, which hopefully at some point people have grown up enough that we can begin to talk about that without blowing too many minds. Um, the idea in some of the Luciferian Crowley uh, work with Gematria is that you can begin to understand, like they have a list in some of the Crowley books that actually tell what prime numbers from say you know one to a hundred and something or actually maybe 99 they've discovered what these prime numbers mean according to the crowley work and in reading about that very very complex gematria the idea is put forth that to understand a number you have to understand what made the number. In other words, if you took something like 14, you could clearly understand that that's made from two sevens. So that begins to tell you something about the number 14. And they are acting as if um, every number and has an absolute meaning and usage that it can be put towards um, prime numbers being special and other numbers being special. So I think this feeds back into the gematria for people who would look at the ge the geometrix calculator, the gematria calculator. The idea there is also if you took a sentence and got a value in gematria for the sentence, each word within that sentence is contributing a numerical value and relating to what the overall true meaning of that grouping of words is in the same way that letters that group a word together would play the same role. And I know that's a hard thing to explain, but there it is. But I, I wanted to, while, while we're kind of, I should have brought this up while we were talking about the booze commercial. Um, did you guys see this new Pizza Hut commercial that everyone's attributing to the lunar wave work I did? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let's take it one at a time. I mean, what are your views? Zach Hubbard came out on the last show, first person to mention it in public that I know of, and said I had my own commercial. And for my part, when I first saw it, I was a bit stunned, then reeled myself back and said, don't be too self-important. Um, kind of got over myself and finished what I was doing, came over, sat down at the computer, and it had blown up with people messaging me saying they made you know this commercial about me. So, James, you first. What do you make of it? Um, no, I agree. I think it's basically marginalizing, you know, people who do what I think is important research, uh, you know, whether it includes the lunar wave or, you know, ripping apart a motion picture or a commercial. I mean, this is valuable stuff and, um, you know, it creates awareness. And the easiest thing to do is just to put a, a bright tinfoil hat on somebody who is talking about, um, you know, some possible truth or at least being open to it. And it's the easiest way to marginalize them, throw them on a commercial, put some carbohydrate, cheap pizza that everybody, you know, wants to eat and attach it to this crazy individual who is the conspiracy theorist. Um, I, it's interesting. And, and we'll talk about this a little later. I think it's interesting that it was released about a month prior to this whole Comet ping pong pizza thing that's slowly getting rolled out, um, maybe hinting at some pedophilia rings in Washington, D.C. attached to this family restaurant. Um, right now, of course, it's in the arena of like Reddit and all these 
conspiracy theorist, but uh, some really interesting things that could possibly come out of this. And right now the mass media is not choosing to focus on it, but that's my two cents. Jason? Um, The whole thing in in general is just let's poke fun at the conspiracy theorists like they always have done. And it's absolutely true that um, more people are aware of or at least challenging mainstream uh, thoughts than they ever have before. So here comes this mainstream commercial just making a big joke about everything that if you challenge the mainstream, you're a Looney Tune. Ha ha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. But anyhow, I, I, I didn't know if you were going to come back on this, Jason, but we're just about to the top of the hour. Um, how about we take a 10 or a 15 minute break and then regroup? <laughs> 